following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. reading John 8, beginning at verse 31 through 47. This text contains a saying of Jesus that I think has become almost a cliche to the point that we wouldn't get past the cliche to know what it really means. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We want to understand those words of Jesus today. But let me read, and I urge you to follow along in your own Bible or the Pew Bible. John 8, as I read, beginning at verse 31, the Word of God. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, and the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your Father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. May God apply his word which penetrates as the spirit brings it into our hearts and minds. It was in 1941 
months before the United States entered World War II as a result of Pearl Harbor, that then-President Franklin Roosevelt gave a radio address, which I wasn't around to hear, but I understand it was quite stirring, as he defined the human rights that he saw being at stake in the war against Hitler already underway in Europe at that time. And Roosevelt memorably spoke about four primary freedoms, which he said all democratic nations must be willing to defend. Famously, they were the freedom of speech, freedom from want, freedom from fear, and freedom of worship. Many of you will know that the artist Norman Rockwell was commissioned by the government to depict those four freedoms in famous paintings. I've had occasion to see those originals twice at Stockbridge, Massachusetts, the the Rockwell Museum, and I would say to you, if you believe that Norman Rockwell was only a magazine illustrator who painted amusing Saturday evening post covers, I would say to you that in those four paintings, if nowhere else, you discover that this man was truly a great artist. They show, those paintings show the political freedoms and the various aspects of it that we do so prize for living here in a country like America. The civil blessing that we have to be free to speak, free from want, free from fear, and have the freedom of worship. Those are at least primary dimensions of American freedom. But I would remind you that it is not any of those things that Jesus had in mind when he spoke about freedom in John chapter 8. And I have found over the years that these words, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free, have become sort of one of those cliches of Bible language that people lift out and they apply to all kinds of situations. The truth about this or that or something else, not what Jesus was talking about. The Word of God and the mind of our Lord, as He said this, promises a specific liberty, and it's not something any earthly government is capable of granting or guaranteeing. It is rather a magnificent freedom of the children of God who trust in Jesus Christ. That knowledge that once we are justified in Jesus, we are emancipated from the deadly and final consequences of sin. The grave is no longer a great fear to us. It's not a dark prison that we will enter into and never escape. And it tells us, too, that those whom Christ makes free enjoy, even in this life, not only in eternity, but in this life today, we enjoy a great peace with God and a great confidence by which we can live. Spiritual freedom in Christ comes from knowing the truth. Now we could ask, what is that truth? Throughout history, people have defined truth there different ways in philosophies, various religions, various cults. I was interested a while back in receiving an invitation to a high school uh, reunion. I have never attended those, but I get the mailings. And, and we had one where uh, folks, different folks, uh, you know, mailed out little news sound bites about themselves. And, and one girl I didn't know very well in, in my class all the way through had her little statement or little defining thing about herself 
that she wanted to declare to all her classmates that the Unification Church, that's remember Sun Myung Moon and his mass marriages and all of that from Korea, she said, the Unification Church is the hope of the world. I thought, oh, how edifying. She had found her truth, and, and she thought that that truth made her free somehow. Well, there have been all kinds of people who have had their little truths, and they've said, my truth cancels out every other kind of truth. Back several centuries ago in Europe, we had what was called the Enlightenment, a period of time in the 17th and 18th century when human reason came to the fore and was exalted to great heights, and the idea was touted that man's wonderful intellect had now arrived in the areas of science and social thinking, political thinking, many other areas. We could now think and use our minds to create great government and and great new education and all kinds of nirvana for humanity. And by all means, we had outgrown the need for divine revelation, for some unseen God from heaven to tell us anything. Man could do it himself. Well, the horrors of the French Revolution were probably the first big shocking jolt to the thinking of the Enlightenment. And then came a a while later, a century or more later, the two world wars that horrified the world. And suddenly we began to say, where is this great dawn of of wonders that the mind of man is supposed to bring about? We don't see it. And by the mid-20th century, philosophy in general in our country began to indulge a mood of pessimism and skepticism, even to the point of despair. Well, then somehow, post-World War II, things moved along into the late 20th century and early 21st, and now we're still in, many would say, the period of what we call postmodernism. Now, if these terms don't mean much to you, I think you do know what postmodernism is. It is that system which basically says, look, there is no universal system of truth. There are no universal morals that apply to everybody everywhere at all times. Everybody, every group has their own little set of of thoughts and rules and so on. And, And if they work for your group, fine. But just don't tell everybody else that they apply to them. There's no ultimate truth. That's what postmodernism says. And I think this works out well because postmodernists, like everybody else, like to sin. And they like to sin in the sexual area. So they can say, look, don't lay your Christian morality on me. It doesn't apply to me. And in fact, you all know what the great virtue of postmodernism is. So it's amazing how this has come about in the last 25 or 30 years. The great virtue is tolerance. We tolerate everything. Everybody has a right to act any foolish way they want to. That, of course, makes Bible-based Christianity the worst enemy of all because we do say there is universal truth. There are morals that are universally applicable. And so how do we end up looking? We are the intolerant ones. We cannot be tolerated by everybody else. Our goal in examining John 8, 31 and following today is to understand what Jesus here called spiritual slavery, first of all, and then hopefully to be able to rejoice and be reminded of God's wonderful gift in Christ of true spiritual liberty. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, first of all, Jesus here in this passage asks us to face 
the truth about our spiritual slavery, the slavery into which human beings are born unto sin. He says, if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. He implies a freedom that is, it is wide-reaching and, and very deep in what it accomplishes. He's implying freedom to people whose faces are pressed so hard against the bars out of which they look upon life that they don't even know the bars are there. You know, you could have your face into the bars far enough that you weren't even aware of them as they framed your face. That's the way Jesus is saying the people he's talking to are. They don't even understand that their souls are shackled. In verse 34 of our text, he told his audience, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. Now, really, one of the the most fundamental beginning places to become a Christian is to know that and embrace that and say, yes, Jesus, I know that is true of me. I accept what you're telling me. I began in this world as a slave of sin. If you know that, you're already on the way towards having your jail unlocked. Paul spoke about it, his own self-understanding, in Romans chapter 7 in a famous way when he told about trying to be good, trying to obey the laws of God and so on. And he said, you know, I worked at it and I tried But whenever I tried, quote, I see another law at work within me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. See, there's the problem with the enlightenment. If you think the law of your own mind is going to be triumphant, you're disregarding the fact that there's another law at war with your reason, at war with your own mind. The apostle understood that no matter how educated he became, how how imaginative he was, how creative he was in his thinking. However holy he tried to be, his will was controlled by forces he could neither comprehend nor, in the final sense, master. Leo Tolstoy, of course, was a Russian novelist who often embraced Christian themes. And uh, he said something pretty simple. I think it's, it's, you're able to visualize this really well. It's not, you might think I'm quoting you know, he's quoting a Russian guy. This must be something uh, really exalted. Well, it's really down to earth. Tolstoy said, a horse harnessed to a wagon is not free to walk beside the wagon or to ride in the wagon. Either he pulls the wagon properly as expected of him or it will hit his legs. The horse can either pull or stand still, but in no case may he ever release himself from his own harness. Now, Lancaster County people can handle this, okay? Kids, you can handle this. You've you've seen in the last few days, I'm sure, an Amishman driving his horse down the road. Now, use your imagination. Would it ever be possible in the world of, of, of any, you know, wild imagination to think that a horse, an Amish horse, would say, I'm sick of this. I'm tired of pulling this buggy around all the time. Mr. Amishman who owns me, you get in the harness, I'm going to sit in the buggy and drive the buggy. How ridiculous. We all know nothing like that is ever going to happen. But Leo Tolstoy was saying, for men and women, being hitched to a heavy wagon we have to pull called our sin nature is a fact for every human being from the cradle onward. If we were to try to say, I will now unharness myself and be liberated, we couldn't do it. You know, a horse doesn't even have the hands to manipulate the harness to get it off of himself. 
If he got down on the ground and rolled around trying to free that harness, he'd just get himself more tangled up and in a worse situation than he is now. And Jesus told people in John 8, 33 here that sin is not only that which binds them like a wagon they have to pull around, it binds, but it also blinds them in such a way that they don't even understand their condition. And that's true. We see it by the people Jesus is talking to. Because these folks, and you know, it's a little confusing in this passage because if you were real observant, you noticed in verse 31, he said this to Jews who believed in him. They had shown some kind of interest that apparently fell short of real conversion faith. But they had responded somehow to him. And yet they really weren't clear yet about what saving faith was. Well, they said, hey, Jesus, you know, you're, you're saying we're slaves? What do you mean? We've never been slaves of anybody. Do you see how blind that statement is spoken by the people who spoke it, Israelites in Jerusalem of the first century? The, there's probably not an ancient nation that had been slaves to more different nations than the land of Israel. They'd been the slaves of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Greeks, And now, if they looked while they were talking, probably somewhere in the distance they could see a few Roman soldiers walking by to remind them of the tyrannical domination of Rome. They were the slaves of Rome right that moment. But they said, we've never been anybody's slaves. What are you talking about? Do you see how blind you can be? Have you ever had a relative or a friend or a co-worker who was a serious alcoholic? And you heard that person say to others, oh, I can lay off that stuff anytime I want. I don't need it. I can stop drinking. Uh Uh-huh. Have you ever known a drug addict who said the same thing? I don't, oh, yes, I enjoy a high once in a while, but, you know, I'm in control of it. Uh Uh-huh. If you're that ignorant of what dominates your life, you only prove how much you remain in the grip of something. Time and again, the Bible proves that those who are most entangled in the bonds of sin are also the most oblivious to what's really going on in their own lives, in their own circumstances. The illustration is probably outworn. It's used so often, but you all have heard of the frog in the pan of water. I'm I'm really not sure this would ever happen, but you know the the, the idea, the frog is in the water and you gradually heat it up a few degrees at a time and the frog is just going to be so accustomed to warmer and warmer and warmer water that he's going to boil before he jumps out. Now, I kind of think frogs would jump myself, but uh, I have to ask a frog. I've never asked one. But I've sure observed people in that situation. People who didn't understand how warm the circumstances of their lives, how destructively warm the circumstances around them were becoming. And they don't even know that they're dog paddling in waters that are approaching 200 degrees. John Calvin, of all people, had a very keen observation about this when he said, not about frogs, but he said, the more enslaved a person is, the greater his resentment will be at being told the truth about himself. The greater the mass of vices anyone is buried under, Calvin said, the more fiercely and bombastically will he extol 
his supposedly unfettered free will to depart from it. Isn't that true? He used a few big words there, but he was basically talking about how blind people are. They, they can't even grasp what's going on as they're enslaved to sin. A large proportion of humanity has never grasped that apart from redemption in Jesus Christ, sin and death have moral dominion over their lives, which may be actually very respectable looking in the outward sense. But apart from Christ the liberator, people live in a narrow, cramped environment as if they were in a dark closet and only saw the real world through little cracks as the door is just open an inch or so for them to look out. Have you yet understood that that's your situation coming into this world as a human being? You are just like that horse who has no choice but to pull the wagon of guilt and sin and temptation. And once you recognize that and lay it before your God, you're ready for him to do a work of liberty for you. Secondly, we look at Jesus speaking here in especially verses 38 and following about the way human lives will reflect this. And, and he chooses to bring another image in, the idea of who you're related to, who your ancestry is. And he asks us this, put your true ancestry to the test. You see, these people were maintaining that they were children of Abraham, and that was their great claim. They went through the, the life, you know, I'm, if they made badges or, or wore T-shirts, you know, with slogans on, child of Abraham would have been the most popular T-shirt for people in Israel. They would have gone around saying, see, I'm a child of Abraham. And Jesus says, I know you regard yourself as a child of Abraham, and you certainly are of his biological descent. I don't argue with that. But why are you not of his spiritual descent? Well, what do you mean? Well, I mean the vast inconsistency between the way Abraham would have behaved towards me as a man of faith, the archetypal man of faith, and the way you behave. By the way, we're going to meet Abraham before the end of this chapter. Again, verse 56, Jesus is going to say, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In other words, Abraham rejoiced in the Christ whom God would bring. Do you? As a matter of fact, it seems to me that you're trying to kill the Christ that God has brought. It's absurd to think of Abraham doing that. And then Jesus came. I'm not giving as much uh, treatment of all the details of this second part here as I might, but look at how bluntly he comes to the bottom line in verse 44. You know, Jesus said a lot of offensive things, uh, offensive that is to the, the unbeliever. In this discussion he's been having for several chapters with skeptics, I don't think he said anything more directly offensive than what comes out of his mouth in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. He was saying that to people who paraded through the ancient world saying, we are descended from the greatest man of God who ever lived. And he was saying, you're Satan's children because you fly the colors of one who is called a father of liars and is a murderer from the beginning. You know, we like to think that, that maybe some famous criminal uh, 
I don't know. I don't think John Dillinger had any kids that I know of. But let's say public enemy number one, John Dillinger, a long time ago. He's way beyond our young people's remembrance, but he was a, a very infamous criminal. And, and let's say John Dillinger had cute little children, an adorable little girl and boy. Don't you think he would love his children? And he would like to play with them and read to them and, and buy them nice things and aspire for them to grow up and maybe become doctors or engineers or nurses or something. He would have the same good feelings any father has. Would John Dillinger go out and say, now, you are children of a notorious criminal. I'm going to teach you to steal cars, to cheat, to murder anybody who disagrees with you, and use any kind of firearm to get your way. I I can't imagine even the most notorious criminal would, would want to raise his children that way. And yet, Jesus says, you people who think you are good religious people and you're hiding behind the shield of good religion, so-called, you think that you have the characteristics of your ancestor? No way. Your ancestor would have greeted me in faith. The characteristics in which you have in your life are the very characteristics of Satan himself, the author of lies. I once dealt with a man who I still pray for. A man who, after many, many years of my association with him now, early in my knowledge of him, professed Christian faith. He was a church member. He knew the Bible. He was glib with the Bible. He could quote Scripture better probably than, I would say, the majority of people in this room. And he was always a church And people regarded this man as a great Christian. But over the years, it just seemed like things didn't ring true. And I could never, sometimes I tried to connect things about this man, and the connections went like this. It just didn't work. He would say something, but the actions of his life, I'd say, well, I began to say, well, where's the fruit of the Spirit in this man? And every time I tried to match up this man and the fruit of the Spirit, it went like this. And then more and more, and it took a decade, really, to really begin to see that this man was the author of very elaborate webs of deceit and even outright lies. But the worst thing about it, as it seemed to me, was I'm not sure this man knew he was lying. I think he had been so captivated by the idea that he could just create his own persona in what he said about himself and claimed for himself that in any situation he would say whatever was necessary to make that person he was talking to think about him the way he wanted to be thought of. And he couldn't even see that he was leaving trails of complete contradictions and that none of it really rang true with his character and the way he treated people. I really reached the conclusion with this man, which is a radical conclusion, and I reach it only as a humble man who says God ultimately is the judge. But I was unable to believe that this man's profession of faith was genuine and that he did know Christ. And yet he would be regarded by many as almost a pillar in the Christian community. Amazing. I think this man showed his true ancestry. The father of lies had taught him to lie until good was evil and evil was good and it just all worked out whatever serves me at the moment. Galatians 3.26 says, Christians are sons and daughters of God only through faith 
in Jesus Christ. Nobody's properly a son or daughter of God who does not embrace Christ. The beginning of this same uh, gospel, John 1.12 said, as many as received Christ, the Word, to them God gave the power to become children of God. And those who are God's children are going to reflect that in their character. Can you see that in your life today? You say, well, I, I see a lot of things wrong. I, I'm very imperfect. I'm not doing so great as a Christian. But can you see at least the desire to confess to God, to seek in repentance the forgiveness of God in Christ, to long for an exhibition of his actions in your life? If you desire that, I believe you're probably a child of God on the way. Still, with God working in to perfect you. Now, in conclusion then, I want to just for a few minutes ask this last question. How then do to Christ's free people, the true children of God, or if you want, children of Abraham, because that's what we are too, how do we behave if that's what we are? Well, one thing that's going to be different, of course, the very fundamental thing is that we're free from the consequences of sin forever. Guilt is ultimately erased Our record is wiped clean. The Scripture says our sins are as far from us as the East is from the West. That's pretty far. You know, I used to think if the East and the West got separated and kept going around the earth, eventually they'd meet. But I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. He was saying, as far as two things can be from one another, your sins have been removed by my cross. And so Paul would say, who is he that condemns me now? No one. The wrath of God was spent on Christ that was deserved by me. I am not the subject of the consequences of my sin. I do not have to live in fear. That's the great thing that Christ's free people have. Eternally, the consequence of sin and death is gone from us. But secondly, and here's something else you know, and it's pretty fundamental, but I'm not sure you always grasp it or live by it. Believers in Christ have been unchained from the present-day futility and domination of sin. I remember how I tried to work this out as a teenager, this fundamental truth of what we call sanctification. All right, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, but I was very disturbed and very upset, I guess, with myself at the way I kept sinning and having wrong thoughts and so on. Why am I still sinning? I was helped so much by a simple thing. I've held on to it for decades, and it it speaks a great truth. The idea that someone made known to me that while sin and depravity remains in a Christian's life, young people remember these two words, it remains with you, it does not reign over you. That's a very simple truth, but it's absolutely essential that you grasp it as a Christian. Of course you still sin. Of course you still tell lies. You're, you're tempted. You misbehave sexually. You, maybe you get drunk or you're disrespectful to people. Of course you sin. Sin does remain, but it's different than it was before Christ because it does not reign. It does not have dominion. It does not dominate you as a slave owner the way it did. That was a tremendously liberating truth to me as as a teenager. To understand that forgiven in Christ, I had the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me, 
I wasn't the same person after all, even though I still could see sin. You know, it's easy to be too simplistic about counseling people, but, and I'd be interested if John Light were here, I'd give him 30 seconds to reply to this point, but if in counseling people, I, I know that John would come up against situations, I certainly have as I've counseled people, where Christians are anguishing. Why do I still do this, pastor? Why does this thing have a hold on me? And sometimes I want to say, you know, you're dwelling in a, a kind of jail, and you're in despair about being in that jail. What you need to do is take hold of the bars of your jail door and rattle them. And guess what you'll find out? The door isn't locked. Christ has opened that door. You don't need to dwell in that prison house. Now, that isn't always going to be a magical overnight solution to somebody's problem, but sometimes it is a light bulb moment to realize I'm being ruled by things that really don't rule me. We are now even free to strive for the obedience to God's law. The law of God which once condemned us told us, you know, the wagon of sin was being pulled along and we couldn't escape it. Now that same law is something that that has a good purpose, a holy purpose. It shows us what righteousness is, how God wants us to behave. And it's not a narrow-minded legalism that tells a Christian, go out and love God's law. Strive to obey it. You will fail. You will fall down. But get up again. And by the power of the Spirit, strive to follow God's law. And gradually, gradually, a love for that law and an obedience to it will grow in your life. And you'll know that you're under the mercy of Christ every time you fail. You're not eternally condemned because that same Lord Jesus Christ who died for you is going to pick you up and carry you forward in your desire to obey his law. I hope you at least will go away today not thinking of this cliche quote from John 8. You'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Just the truth is some kind of vague thing. It's very specific. It's the truth about yourself, about God, and about Christ. When you know that truth, it really does have an emancipating effect that God grants to all those who trust in Jesus Christ, really giving us new lives. The Word of God is what teaches us this timeless, absolute truth about who we are, who God is, who Christ is, what He's done, and what awaits us beyond the grave. The Bible is called the Word of Truth in 1 Timothy 2. The Spirit of God is called in John 14, 17, the Spirit of Truth. And therefore, 1 Timothy 4, 3 says that redeemed people in Christ are those who know the truth. And Jesus said, when we know it, it sets us free. It shows us a new relationship with God, our Savior. And if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Thanks be to God. Our Father, I praise you for the liberating grace of the gospel of Jesus. It is a wonderful thing, Lord, to be an American and to have the liberties of our country. But beyond that is this greater freedom, setting us free, unlocking the jail door that would have imprisoned us, 
and we would have left this earthly life to go into an existence more horrible than death itself. Father, I pray for those who need to discover freedom in Christ, whether for the first time to to admit their sin and, and call Christ Lord, or whether as believers to see that they've still been living as if in the old jail when the door's unlocked. Help your people, O oh God, to be liberated from things that bind them. We rejoice in the freedom of Christ. Amen.